You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. I want to thank Pastor Mike for the uh, privilege of speaking uh, here today. And uh, coming back to El Paso, we spent uh, seven years uh, here in El Paso planting a church on the far east side of the city. And uh, I know why many of you uh, have not left, because of the beauty uh, here, uh, not to mention the humidity that you would be going to if you left uh, here, where I come from. So it is a a blessing and a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this day for quite a while. Hispanic Baptist Theological School is one of 23 institutions that are owned by the Baptist General Convention of Texas, of which you are a part of. And uh, this, uh, uh, this particular ministry is designed to prepare men and women for Christian ministry. Our vision is to become a premier equipper of cross-cultural ministry leaders who serve in a multicultural context. We know that that is the future. We know that the ends of the earth have now come to Texas. We know that we do not have the option to be a missionary and go across the sea, but that it now is a, it is a question of whether or not we'll cross the street to share the gospel because the mission field has now come to Texas. I'm happy to announce that your investment in Hispanic Baptist Theological School through the cooperative program in the Mary Hill Davis has begun to already bring a return. Uh, This semester we've enrolled 121 students, uh, a 62% increase over last year. Uh, Two years ago we started with 42 students on the main campus. We uh, broke our 54-year history of um, our first time uh, uh, freshman class of 42 with 60, I believe 62 students this, this year. And so God has begun to do some pretty exciting things. We have students from all over the world, uh, five different Latin American countries. We have uh, Japanese uh, students uh, as well as an Israeli Arab, uh, Euro-American, African-American. So it's uh, really an interesting uh, combination. I also want to thank you for your prayers and for your support your financial support through the Mary Hill Davis offering uh, that is part of what you're uh, raising and the offer missions offering that you're collecting and the cooperative program. Also, I'm especially thankful to you for letting us borrow one of your members. Mrs. Jackie Miller has become a trustee, one of 21 tr- trustees uh, of our institution, of our school. And so we're now connected uh, at the heart uh, because she's now serving, representing uh, your church as well as Texas Baptist. Today I'd like to speak on the topic of first century hope for a broken world. The events of September 11th that many of you are now familiar with uh, have brought us into focus the brokenness of our nation and our world. We've seen the clash of worldviews and the evil that human beings are capable of doing with the bombings earlier this month. Future uh, futurist and pastor educator and missiologist Tom Wolfe, who also spoke in this church a few years ago, has suggested that we now have global consensus in the area of the uh, economic uh, issues. We now know, and everyone convinced around the world knows that the free t- free market system is the best way to do business around the world. It's the way countries flourish. It's the way business is done most effectively. We all now know that there is now global consensus, as Dr. Wolfe suggests. In the area of the political arena, people all over the world, it is as though it is the cry of their heart, know that the best governance of people in the world is the democratic process and way of life. But we do not have global consensus on the issue of spirituality. The question of 
which is the best system to live life on the planet? Which is the best way to live? And what spiritual system gives us the best way? You and I know and probably have a consensus this morning that the Jesus way is the best way to live life. He who said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes but by me. He who said, I have come to give you life. We know that by living according to his teachings and by having a personal relationship with him, we are convinced that that's the best way to live life on the planet. But we do not have global consensus on this. We know that uh, in this process, as we think about this, uh, that there are four worldviews that what Dr. Wolf calls the global conversation, the formidable four of the question and the debate that we're now seeing evidence and we're listening to around the world that that conversation between Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism, that discussion of which is the best way then to live. Isn't it interesting that the event that shook New York, America, and the world can be linked to issues related to that particular worldview and that religious system? When was the last time that our nation was brought down to our knees and focused on CNN or any of the major networks on the issue of religious views and perspectives? When was the last time that you heard so much focus and attention on the issue of religion in the context of a global crisis like we're seeing today? Welcome to the new world order. This is the new world, and we are now living in it. It is the world that your children will inherit and live in. It's the world that your grandchildren will also struggle and wrestle with. And that global conversation, uh, someday we hope, will be uh, determined and that there will be global consensus. I take comfort in knowing that today God is still sovereign, that he is still the king, he still sits on his throne, that Jesus Christ is still Lord, that he is still the master and ruler and Lord over history. I, I still believe that I'm still a believer and I'm still called to preach and we're still called to be the church despite how our nation has been shook. And despite how things have, have, have played out. And so the question that we ask today is how do we find first century hope for a broken world? How do we then go about leading people to a personal faith in Christ? I'm convinced that the only way to find peace is, of course, through the Prince of Peace. There is no other way. There is only one God, and Jesus is his name. And he is the Prince of Peace. He's the only one that can help transform a life and keep us from the evil that we've seen. In an article entitled The God of Small Beginnings, Dr. Jeff Myers, professor of communication at Bryan College, suggests that when God wants to do something really big, he starts really small. God's small work is only the manifestation of a universal plan that he has for the globe and for the planet. At the very smallest point, you will find the greatest power. Meyer quotes a professor of science from Harvard University and says that the more the powerful the force in nature, the smaller the manifestation of that power. Gravity is the weakest natural force acting over great distances of space. Electromagnetic force acts over short distances, holding molecules together. Yet the strongest force known to man, the strong nuclear force, acts only within the nuclei of the atom, over a distance of less than one trillionth of a millimeter. The greatest power known to man happened and started in a very, very small place in Bethlehem in a manger at the birth of his son. Yet that same power reverberates and is now changing lives all over the world. And for 2,000 years, families have been changed. Lives have been transformed. You have changed. I have changed. We've all been impacted by this very great power that started in this very small, small place. 
And I believe that God wants to do something extraordinary, and he will start with a very, very small place and a very, very small situation with the greatest power ever known. Ultimately, we know that the answer to the dilemma of the 21st conversation, 21st century conversation, can be found in the first century dynamics. We need to rediscover the the dynamics of the ancient future. That is the future we're going into, and those things that worked in the first century are what we desperately need today to find the solutions to the dilemmas that we're facing. And if we could somehow find God's redemptive power, if we could somehow capture it and maybe examine it and discover it, we would begin to tap into the century, the first century church and its power. We'd be able to understand it better and apply it for us as we do evangelism and missions right here on the borderland in the largest borderplex in the world. The smallest point of manifestation can be found in the spiritual DNA of the first century church at Thessalonica. Rediscovering this spiritual DNA of the first century would give us some clues as to our, how our first century faith can be applied in the 21st century, which is now being considered the twin sister of the first century. Please open your Bibles now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 4 through 10. And as we read this, I think that we'll be able to find in this passage uh, the spiritual strands of DNA of the first century church that will give us insight to how the gospel transformed the first century. If you uh, follow along, I'll read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. It says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy of given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. I think if we were to take as in a laboratory, a, micro, uh, a microscope, and we were to zero in and put this passage under the lens and look for those DNA strands, we would find three, and those three would be transformational impact, relational investment, and exponential increase. You would look at those strands and you'd find a sort of a formula that transformed the first century. Let's look at transformational impact in verse 4 and 5. Paul says, our gospel came to you. There is a directional flow. The gospel is going from one place to another place. Our gospel came to you, he said. And it, it went through the lives of the apostles who had uh, heard the message. And he says, our gospel. It was a gospel that was entrusted into those apostles. It was entrusted into them. And this gospel that was entrusted to them has also been entrusted into us, those of us that live in El Paso or San Antonio or wherever we may be. This gospel came to us, and you see the gospel that came to us must now go through us. It can't stay with us and stagnant in us, but it must pass through us, and there really needs to be a directional flow of the gospel that goes through our lives and penetrates every interpersonal relationship we have. It must have an impact. The first century church had that issue and that DNA characteristic of transformational 
impact. Paul records it in verse 5 that the gospel came to the Thessalonians not with just words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. It was speech plus convincing power of the Holy Spirit plus a visible impact on the lives of the people that were receiving that gospel. In a pagan setting, the power was needed. So they were very careful to demonstrate how Jesus transformed their lives. Jesus changed their conduct. Jesus changed their vocabulary. Jesus changed their relationships. Jesus changed their ability to relate to other people who had no hope for eternity among people who had never seen anything like it before. The gospel was brought as Christianity in action, and they could see it. What, would, what you had was a clear message and a living example coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. The persuasion of truth was possible in the, in, the hearers, uh, in the hearing because of what they saw. The apostolic team not only preached a transforming message, but they lived transformed lives in the presence of their audience as well. Bill Hybels, I think, got it right when he said that the formula for contagious Christianity is high potency plus close proximity equals maximum impact. What we see, if we were to put this under the microscope, is the spiritual DNA of the first century church is that whenever and wherever they preached the gospel, a radical transformation and a radical impact took place for those who received that gospel. George Barna does a study uh, as we look now at the uh, beginning of the 21st century. If we look at the burgeoning Hispanic population in Texas alone, we realize that we have a tremendous evangelistic challenge and probably more than anybody else in the state of Texas is aware of that with the sister city of Juarez. And El Paso alone, you know the demographics. You, 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 you know it well. Uh, demographers are saying that this city represents the, uh, the uh, microcosm of the demographic future of all of the southwestern part of the United States. And so these issues are now in front of you. You are now living in the future. What many Texans will experience in 10 to 20 years, you are there now. And he says by the year 2030, one in two Texans will be Hispanic as compared to one in four today. George Bonner's predicting that in the 21st century, Hispanics will leave the Catholic Church and they will end up in three places. Some will stay true to the Catholic faith. There'll be another second group that will become evangelical Christians. The third group that he's predicting is that they will become agnostic. He says that the ones that will have the least amount of inheritance would be the Roman Catholic Church. I believe that you can be a believer and be in the Catholic Church. I think you can even be a believer and be in a Baptist church too. <laughs> And, uh, and, 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 but he says that the big winner, the big gainer is going to be agnosticism. Now, I grew up as a boy in Corpus Christi, always knowing that we had cousins that were Catholics and cousins that were Baptists. I didn't know that there was another choice. And so for them to say that we're now not the choice, that agnosticism is the choice and will be the choice is alarming to me. In another article he wrote called The Faith of Hispanics is Shifting, he said that Hispanics are struggling with the intersection of faith and culture when speaking the choice about the choice that Hispanics will make uh, in the future. Regarding their spirituality, he says that they will either experience a life-transforming insight that reshapes their theology, that reshapes the way they see the world, or the churches and congregations that receive them will experience simply a marketing success at the cost of their theological beliefs. What Hispanics will need in the next 10 to 20 years is a visible example of a life impacted by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the living and resurrected Lord. 
What the average non-believer at work and in your neighborhood needs is visible and viable evidence that Jesus really does make a difference. When you put the message together with the power of the changed life and the working of the Holy Spirit, people will either have to, to back off from you or they'll have to get close to you because they want what you have. Let me pose a few questions this morning. How many non-believers consider you to be their friend? Of those that consider you to be their friend, how, many, how much meaningful time have you spent with them in the last month? And of those, how many are seeking answers to spiritual question, questions? Would these non-believers that are your friends be able to find enough evidence of the presence, transforming presence of Jesus in your life? When we examine the spiritual DNA of the first century, we see that the church had a transformational impact in its message, but it also had a relational investment as we put this under the microscope and see the second strand. In verse 6, Paul says to the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. These new believers underwent a transformation of their lives as, as well, and their behavior changed, and they copied the people who brought them the message. And they copied them so well that they started to imitate the Lord as well. Can someone copy you and say, you know, it's kind of like imitating the Lord. When was the last time someone said that about me or you? They became imitators of their spiritual parents, the missionaries. And you know what? This is normal behavior. That's what's supposed to happen. New believers imitate what they see in their spiritual parents. And for them, it didn't stop there. It was also the Lord. The apostolic team hung around long enough for these new believers to copy their habits and their life ways. They learned how to live in a new way. Their worldviews, their cultures, uh, their relationships, their families, their lives, their work habits, everything changed by the power of God. And there was a serious and intentional relational investment in the lives of those who came to know Christ. Leonard Sweet, in his book entitled A Cup of Coffee at the Soul Cafe, says that Discipleship really is an invitation for you to make another place at your table. It's making room for one more plate. Discipleship is communal. It is sharing one's life with a new brother or sister in the Lord. That's what discipleship is. And while discipleship studies and discipleship study books are outstanding and excellent, and I highly recommend them, that's really not what it's about. It's about making room in your life. It's about making room in your Palm Pilot, it's about making room in your daytimer, it's about making room in your checkbook, it's about making room in your life for these new brothers and sisters who come to know Christ. That's how they're going to catch the habits, because they see you and they're close enough to you to catch new habits and see the transformational power of God in your life. As Brother Mike said, uh, Belinda and I have three boys, Joshua, David, and Tommy, and uh, uh, one is uh, four, the other six, and the other is eight, and recently my oldest son, Joshua, has just He'll come up to me and he'll just kiss me on the cheek and he'll hug me real tight. And he's, he's, he's a big kid. I mean, a hundred pound eight-year-old boy coming to hug you is an experience in itself. But then what really makes it, uh, makes me stop in my tracks and sort of arrest my attention is what he says in my ear. He says, Dad, I love you and I want to be just like you. I want to have an office and a computer. I want to get married and have three boys. <laughs> and... Uh, as, as flattering as that is, it really arrests my attention because I ask myself, does he really want that? I mean, does he really want... Am I living in such a way that I would want him to copy me? I mean, we all have our bad days. And what part of me is not like Christ needs to change? It just arrests my attention. And you know the popular song, I want to be 
just like you because he wants to be just like me. I want to be a holy example for his innocent eyes to see. You know, those that come around us to faith in Christ, they want to be just like you. The reason why they said yes to Jesus is because they saw the difference Jesus made in your life. And they want to copy you. They want to have a life like you because they've never seen anything like that before. Just this uh, past summer, we were in Houston, and I was uh, to speak at a church, and we were at a hotel. I got there early, got called the church, got directions. I did that too this morning, double check, Brother Mike. I've been here before, but I said, I need to make sure I know where that Thunderbird Street intersects. And so I did that in Houston. But of course, Houston is a little bit larger city than El Paso, and uh, it took me two hours to do a 20-minute drive uh, to get to this uh, place where I was to be the keynote speaker. And of course, my message that night was uh, navigating the challenges of ministry <laughs> in the 21st century. And of course, uh, I was late, and my wife said, you know, you had a great message, but what you needed was a map. And I said, right. In fact, the points of the sermon was, you need a map, a missionary mindset, apostolic heart, heartbeat, and a prophetic voice. And, and so my son uh, saw me. He knew I was pretty stressed out and pretty upset, and he was watching me from the back seat. The other two boys had conked out. You know, they were just, they were out. But Joshua was watching the drama that he was, that was unfolding before his eyes. And he said, you know, Dad, right now you have a choice of either being very upset or very happy. And I said, yep, <laughs> you're right. And I said, which one do you think I should choose? He says, you know, I think it'd be better if you just chose to be happy. <laughs> and, you know... That's what happened. I said, you got it. You're on. It's a deal. I'm just going to laugh and be happy. And they laughed at me and about me and about my servant all night. We had a great time. It was, it was good. Those new believers were watching you, and they want to copy you. The drama is unfolding before them, and they're going to catch the habits that you have. When I resigned as pastor seven years ago, uh, the, gen the men of our church got me a uh, union saber, uh, a replica of a union saber, and they framed it put it on a frame, and they gave it to me. They inscribed uh, on the plaque, uh, Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. They did that as sort of a thematic expression for what we had done the last seven years. Uh, we didn't build a great building. We didn't do a lot of things, but we did try to make a difference in a few people's lives. We tried to make it hard for people to go from El Paso to hell. We did, we did, we worked at it. And we took the time to disciple people. And, and uh, those are the brothers and sisters that became the leaders of the church. And you know, when you take two pieces of iron and you smash them together, you do have sparks. And so we did rebuke, we did correct, we did call each other into attention, we did have accountability, and it made a difference in their lives. The main point of this gift was to remind me that through all of our experience, we became sharpened for the sake of Christ. And I'm convinced that one of the spiritual strands missing in the 21st century church is an intentional inv investment in relationships with people who are coming to know Christ. The spiritual DNA also includes an exponential increase. Paul says in verse 7 through 10, you became a model, a type to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia, and the gospel rang out 
The word rang out means that it reverberated. It sort of shook the place. It was like they were uh, amplifying. Every time a new person came to know Christ and they were discipled and someone who was pagan saw the difference in their life, it was like setting up a speaker and a sound system and turning up the volume and cranking it up. And it became such a phenomenon that people began to talk of it as though it was a news item. I'm convinced that if CNN had hookups that day, they'd have to put the Twin Tower bombing story to one side because it became such a topic of conversation among the people. Have you seen these new people that have turned away from idols and now turned to the one true living God? The relationship that they have, the changes in their lives, this was news. This made the news in that time. This was the stuff of the grapevine. Michael Green in his book Evangelism in the Early Church says that one of the reasons why the church grew exponentially is because there were simultaneous conversations about the gospel happening all over the place. The Rise of Christianity, written by Rodney Stark, a sociologist's perspective on the history of Christianity, says that as long as there were new pockets of believers maintaining open networks to those who did not have the gospel, the gospel continued to, to spread rapidly. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book called The Tipping Point, describes how little things can make a big difference. And he describes how uh, social epidemics start and run through our society. Simple things like wearing hush puppies or things like cutting down on crime, they become social epidemics. And he talked about the different laws of the tipping point. If you can imagine taking a chair at your house and pushing it with two fingers on one side, the back of the chair, until it was just about to tip over. And then giving it one more nudge and all of a sudden all the momentum you need begins to take the chair the other way without any effort. And that's the tipping point. He talked about the law of the few where there were, maven, there were connectors, mavens, and salesmen. The connectors were those people who were able to bring other people together. You know anybody like that? They always have the best parties and social gatherings because they know everybody. And everybody wants to be around them so they won't miss out. And so these connectors are active in the tipping point. Then there's the mavens. The mavens are people that have all the information. Uh, they're, the, they're your neighbors that say, you know, uh, if you would just move that tree over to the right, you have the the advantage of the sun coming over here and shade would move that way. And if you want to fix that, that pavement, I know where you can get some good brick and I know the price and Home Depot has the best price. I mean, they know everything about everything. They're experts. And these mavens exist in the tipping point phenomenon of social epidemics. And then the salesmen, of course, are those that are so convinced and so persuasive that as they speak, that you just can't resist the reality and the, the validity of what they're saying. I think the gospel needs a tipping point. And I think we might even be close to one, even with the bombings that we've seen. We need the connectors who are good at networking people and the mavens who have the information of the gospel ready to share and those who speak persuasively to all agree on the message of the transformational power of Jesus to come together for a wave of change uh, in our society today. I think that the uh, evil one, I think if Satan really knew what was going to happen after he crucified Jesus, he wouldn't have done it. He would have backed out. I think that if he knew how many lives would have been transformed and how many people would have been saved from eternal death and sin, if he'd known that his plan was going to backfire, he'd have pulled out. And I think that if he knew what could happen as a result of the Twin Tower bombings, the potential turning of Muslims all over the world to faith in Christ because of how we act and how we live and how we bear out our lives, I think the evil one would have backed out of the plan. 
This is an opportunity for us to pray for Muslims all over the world to turn to faith in Christ. In fact, you have Ramadan that's coming up in January and February where the Muslims will celebrate 30 days of fasting and prayer and look for visions from God. And there's been documented cases of them saying, Jesus spoke to me looking for faith in Christ when they came out of that time. The greatest power is found in the smallest part. The strands are transformational impact, relational investment, exponential increase. What could happen with one life that is fully transformed and available for the master's use? Will you be that person? Will you come to faith in Christ? Would you like to know how your sins can be forgiven? You can know today, you can know here, you can know now. Maybe you would have to make some adjustments in your life because of what we saw in, under the microscope today. If God were to put you under the microscope, what would he see? What would he see in me? Would you stand as we pray? In a moment, uh, we'll have our music of invitation. Pastor Mike will be up front to receive you for any decision. Maybe this is the day you would say, this is the kind of church I want to be a part of, and I feel God's leading me to join today. Maybe you would say, I have a spiritual need in my life, and I want to know how I can be forgiven. That's the need you have. You can come forward. And there may be other decisions that, that the Lord of the invitation would want to deal with you on. This is the time. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that uh, you would speak to us. Lord, we pray that, as the brother sang earlier, that through your faithfulness, through all the ages and through all the times that we have needed and we have wanted and been without and been in crisis and uncertainty and despair and fear, Lord, you have been faithful. And we know that you are, you, you, you are the Lord of history. You do have a plan. We pray that you would cause us to believe that all things really do work for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, even the attack on our nation and country. We pray, Lord, that we know as you draw all the nations to you that you will even use this to draw many people to you who have no faith and no hope for eternity. We ask now that even those among us who would say, I want to know how I can have salvation. I want to know how I can have forgiveness of my sin. I want this new life you're talking about. I've seen it in some of the people here, and now I want it. We pray, Lord, that those would, that would be struggling and thinking about that would be drawn to you this morning, and any other th commitments that you uh, would be working in our hearts. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.